The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. The language of gospel, good news, was first in the Old Testament in relation to what we would consider the work of Jesus at the end of days in Isaiah. He's the first one who uses the language, good news, to talk about the end times reign of God. That he would operate through his servant, that's Isaiah's favorite language for the Messiah. A royal figure who would be filled with the Spirit of God and ultimately overcome the global curse, whose, whose heart would be drawn toward justice, It testifies a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not blow out. And I can testify how much hope that gives me. One of the things that God did for me this summer was um, in, in the midst of what was feeling like burnout, initial stages of burnout, increasing weariness, Increasing agitation in my own soul, um, memory loss. My wife and I pleading with God, show us what's up. Looking at the spiritual habits of grace, Bible reading, meditation, prayer, Christian fellowship, considering the common graces of exercise, rest, diet, And God in His pleasure chose, in in such a merciful, gentle way, to identify some root sin in my heart. Areas of of pride through comparison that were actually becoming extremely debilitating, paralyzing, uh, making me so that I couldn't be productive, so that uh, my mind wasn't acting actively. And and God in such kindness just uh, moved in, fulfilling what he said Christ would do, working in a way that doesn't break the broken, that doesn't blow out faintly burning wicks, but rather moving in with the gift of his Spirit, fanning into flame, giving eyes to see sin in my own soul, moving me to be able to confess it to my Lord, and finding a loving Father who cares for his children. Um, Isaiah is about that kind of a savior. Not just a justifier, something that he does in making us right with God in our past, but someone who saves us from our everyday sins, bitterness, anger, lust. He's there to meet us, and that's what Isaiah is proclaiming. That kind of a king who would come in, enter into a world scathed by Adam's sin, filled with darkness, and bring light. Calling people to move out of the shadows, those that that love the darkness more than light, but to come out and find heat and life and, and light, a guide. And so I've laid out a calendar. I thought maybe by Christmas, Isaiah 66, not going to happen. So we'll push it into second semester and... Um, Maybe it'll go till May. I don't know. But uh, 
to get through all of Isaiah in two years is still quite a feat for uh, DeRoshi. So, <laughs> so I'm going to pray again. And looking at this semester, I hope that what you're going to see after today is that God gave Isaiah for Christians. That's why he wrote the book. I'm actually going to argue that Isaiah's book was not written for Isaiah's audience. It was written for us, believe it or not. That it was actually intended to be Christian scripture, not Old Covenant scripture, when it was written down. Let's see if we can find it in the book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is life. Thank you for your tenacity to let goodness and mercy pursue us all the days of our life if we are in Jesus. Thank you for fresh mercy every dawn, that that every day you're working justice for us, saying, yes, I condemned Christ so that you might have life, life to the full. Thank you that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Thank you that greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. We take comfort in knowing that though we are weak, you are absolutely strong. And you who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us, will graciously with him give us all things. All that we need for life, for godliness. The group of us just dedicate this morning and the rest of this year to you, thanking you that you're the one who promises to build your church even in spite of who we are, and yet, yet you give gifts to the body like pastors. And I pray that I would be an instrument in your hand for these people, not lording over them, but serving them by pointing them to the one who is their help. So as I speak, may I speak as if speaking the very oracles of God. As I serve, may I serve in the strength that you supply so that Christ may be praised. And may what happens in joint heirs this year be a context where Christ is imaged. A Christ who moves toward the broken, who cares for the weary. A Christ who works justice and who loves intensely. And yet who takes sin excessively seriously and fights against it. May that Jesus show up this year, we pray. For his glory, amen. All right, I've asked you to turn to Isaiah 29. The nature, usually, as those who are frequent in this class know, we're in one text, and if it's too long, it's too hard for Deroshi to get through it. And so usually we're, we're in a, a few paragraphs at most. And spending our time there today is, is much more of an, an overview, even reflecting on texts that we've seen, but also looking at some that we haven't seen. I want to start here today. The Old Testament prophets wrote for our instruction. Isaiah is one of these prophets. He was a, a mouthpiece of the living God, part of the heavenly council, commissioned to enter into this world and to address a people who were running from God. A covenant enforcer. He's also called a seer. The prophets were called seers because they could look into the heart of men and women and see what was there often better than they could see themselves. They could see into the present the darkness, the hypocrisies, the lies, the deception. But they also had eyes to see deep into the future. Things that 
no one around them could see. And often, even to them, it wasn't absolutely clear what they were talking about, but they knew it was beautiful, and we need Jesus not simply to enlighten eyes, but provide a lens. So in that sense, the New Testament becomes an answer key for actually understanding where the trajectories are heading. And if you want more on that, you can listen to a talk that I just gave yesterday at Bethlehem College and Seminary at the Eureka Conference focused on mining gold in God's Word. And it was how the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. And it was intended to be so from the beginning. Today we're focusing only on a small subset of what I talked about. Whatever was written in former days, Paul says, he's just gotten done quoting from a lament psalm, Psalm 69. Specifically, a psalm that Jesus quotes from over and over again, and it's one of those what we call curse psalms, where the psalmist is declaring curses on the enemies of God because they hate God and they hate His people. And Paul says, whatever, whatever was written in former days in that Old Testament, remember that was, all the, that was Paul's Bible, he only had an Old Testament. He was writing the New Testament Most of the Gospels are actually written after Paul's letters. His primary Bible was the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for the church. That's what he says. So that, through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So all of a sudden, we have eyes to see, to go back into books like Isaiah, and see the portrait of the Messiah that's given, and then be able to look at Him. As He's displayed to us through the Gospels, be able to look at Him and say, He's the one they were talking about, and find our hearts elevated, because hundreds of years before Jesus showed up, these words were already being stated. So that through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. These things happened to them. That is, Israel in the wilderness, the destroyer, Paul says in the previous verse, came in the form of serpents trying to to bring them down. All the complaining that they had, all the judgments they experienced, they, they happened to them as an example. But they were written down for us. For our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. There's this this trajectory that's laid out in the Old Testament of what would happen at the end. And one of the surprising elements in the New Testament is that what would happen at the end of history has entered into the middle of history. That Jesus didn't completely finish everything when He came the first time, but that there's two appearings of Jesus. It gets stretched out. It's, It's part of the mystery of the New Testament. That the, what was anticipated to happen at the end of history comes into the middle of history through the person of Jesus. But all those anticipations were written for us. For us. Concerning this salvation that you and I get to enjoy today, the prophets of old who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, a grace that they longed for 
but that they didn't have in the same way that we had it. They were longing for something. They recognized that any benefit that they received in their present was due to something that God would do in the future. Any freedom from the curse that they experienced in their present was because God would one day send the royal deliverer to overcome that curse. And, and it, was, it was brought back to them in the form of delight and desire. They were tasting and seeing that God was good, but it was instilling desire for, for the one who would come. It was an encouragement in the context of deep hope for something that they had not seen yet, but that they looked ahead and saw was coming. This salvation... They prophesied about the grace that would be ours as believers. These guys were searching, inquiring carefully. Inquiring what person in time, the Spirit of Christ in them, was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They're prophets talking about the future about an age that you and I are getting to enjoy, and the way that God was giving it to them was not simply through visions. Part of inspiration was happening because they were studying the book. Isaiah was using his Bible, which was not the whole Old Testament yet, but it was things like Moses. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Why? Why would you believe me? Says Jesus. Because Moses wrote about me. And Isaiah was reading Moses, searching and inquiring carefully to understand who this person was supposed to be and when this person was supposed to come. And yet, yet, what we read is it was revealed to them. These guys knew something, that they were not serving themselves, but you. That their words, Isaiah... The book of Isaiah was not for Isaiah. It was not for his audience even. Whereas we're going to see, they didn't want anything to do with it. They couldn't even read it. Their eyes were blind. Their ears were deaf. Isaiah was written for us. They were serving not themselves, but us in the things that have now been announced through the preaching of the apostles. The good news that came by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Isaiah was talking about things that angels stand in awe of. What we get to study this semester are things that angels are standing in awe of. And that kind of fires me up. <laughs> Give me a little of that awe. Help me not let the Bible grow common. It's not common to the angels. They're standing in awe of the revelation of salvation through Jesus. And what that means, not just as past justification, but for daily encounters with fresh grace, new mercy every dawn, shaping me more into His likeness, helping me to deal with, with difficult co-workers, helping me to respond in, in better ways than I have in the past to my children. Shaping me increasingly. Not perfection overnight. just doesn't happen. But promising a progression over a lifetime of increasing brightness. Him reflecting Himself in me. The Old Testament 
prophets wrote down what they did for our instruction. That's, that's the apostle's perspective. What's Isaiah think? So, Isaiah 29 is where we are at. I'm going to highlight a handful of other things, and then we'll look at this text. Isaiah's book was for us, not for his contemporaries. Why do I say that? Well, as I already noted, we've seen it over and over and over again. Isaiah's audience was blind. One of the key words in the second half of Isaiah is the term servant. Between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53, the term servant is always in the singular and it shows up 20 times. Many of those times it refers to the nation as a single person, the servant. And then other times, as a representative of that sinful nation, it refers to an actual individual who will work on behalf of the people. He too is the servant. Now this first text is dealing with the he is the servant nation. What do we learn about it? Well, he sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. He hears many things, but he actually doesn't hear. How, how, how easily all of us sitting... Uh, let me take it away from you. How easily for this guy, sitting in the front row, like we always do, can be listening, listening, and yet not hearing... We see this in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, To you, my disciples, has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. I'm revealing something that's been hidden for long ages. You get the opportunity to to understand it. But to the rest of the people out there, I just speak in parables. To those outside, they only get a parable without interpretation. But you're the insider. You get to understand. But then he bemoans the fact that, don't you understand this parable yet? Like nine times in the book of Mark, the disciples themselves, Jesus is going to say, you don't understand? You don't understand? We're going to see really soon there's a healing miracle that Jesus does with a blind man. The first blind healing, blind man's healing in the book. Eyes to see. It's going to provide a parable for the rest of the book, which over and over again says, let all those who can hear, hear. If you can see, see. It shows up a whole bunch of times in Mark. And the first blind man is going to get healed by Jesus Jesus is going to put his hands on his his eyes and he's going to remove his eyes and he's going to say, what do you see? And the blind man's going to say, "I, I see a bunch of trees walking. Do you remember that? What's going on there? Then Jesus puts his hands back over the man's eyes and all of a sudden he can see real people. This healing is actually a parable of what's going on in the disciples' lives. They don't understand right away. There's a a progression. But by the time you get to the end of the book, it's the second eye healing in the book, 
Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in order to die. Have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus immediately. It's not a two-stage healing. He's awakened. He can see right away. And as you move closer in the Gospel of Mark to the cross event, understanding is, is happening more clearly. Eyes are beginning to see, even among the disciples. But I find myself often a lot like those disciples who are in progress. Brother Rick. Christians are the Christ followers and the Gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So Jesus' Bible, like I'm drawn to call it often, was the Old Testament. And for Jesus and His apostles, Isaiah was understood to be Scripture. Indeed, we've got these three major historical events in the Old Testament um, if, if we were to hop off the train and take some time to look at prophecy in the ancient world, we would see that people were speaking in the name of their God all over the place. We have thousands and thousands of oracles from outside the Bible of prophets saying things. We hear about them. And we also read about false prophets in Scripture. You've got a bunch of yes men. No, Jerusalem's not going to fall. You're all fine. Everything is good. And here's Jeremiah saying, oh yes, it's going to fall. I think it was those major events, 723 when Assyria fell, and certain small subset of Yahweh prophets were declaring, it's going to fall. All of a sudden it happens, and all of the yes-man prophets who were simply trying to make tickle the ears of the populace, all of a sudden those prophets are pushed aside, and those prophets who are predicting the fall, were elevated and recognized these men were proclaiming the Word of God. Bible was being recognized. Bible isn't decided by people. It's simply recognized by people. 586, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, we have got a group of prophets who were saying it's going to happen. They were a small subset in a sea of false prophets. But when it happened, Bible was recognized. The authority of God was recognized. But, and the same thing happens in 539 when Cyrus decrees, you can go back to the land. It was stage one, initial restoration to the land. It was necessary to get back there so that a king could come from Bethlehem. These three major events, I think, were solidifying the Bible. But knowing that Isaiah's prophecy was Scripture, and actually being understand, understand what he was Preaching, it required two things. I think Isaiah understood some of it. I just don't think he understood all of it. And that's why the New Testament uses the language of a mystery revealed. Even for the remnant, a mystery is revealed. But for the rebels, which is where all of us start, it takes that supernatural light to actually 
um, remove the veil, because there's glory all throughout the Old Testament, and I believe you've experienced some of it, just getting to read it, encounter it, but it's because a veil's been removed from your eyes. So I'm saying that I think Jesus and the apostles already had a conviction that the Old Testament was Scripture, but it's that encounter with the risen Savior that both enlightens their eyes and supplies a lens through which they need to look, Jesus himself, for actually understanding where was all this heading. And all that Isaiah was talking about culminates in him. And only by the, when he came were they able to see most beautifully the full trajectory coming to its culmination. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf, yet have ears. They know not, nor do they discern. Then we get this amazing statement. Why were they blind? Because God had shut their eyes so that they cannot see. He shut their hearts so that they could not understand. That's, that's some pretty big God theology. It's not that they wanted to see. Don't, don't hear that. They're right where they want to be. It's right where they've always been. Living in darkness. But in the purposes of God, He chose to let them stay there. He didn't overcome their resistance. Not only that, He's the one who shut their eyes. They were blind from birth, and it was because God had caused it. You remember Isaiah's mission. Right after he sees, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of His robe filled the entire palace of this king called the temple. And all these angelic beings were were flying around with multiple wings, glowing with, with piercing fire, and He hears, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. His life is changed because he sees and he hears glory. I live among a people of unclean lips, he says, but my eyes have seen. All the rest of his contemporaries didn't have those eyes. My eyes have seen the king. And it rips him to the core. Who am I? A man of unclean lips. I live among a nation of unclean lips. And God has His messenger take a coal from the altar, touches His lips, He's purified, and then God asks, who will go for me? Here am I. Send me. And His mission is a mission of judgment. This is what we read. Go. Here's your mission. Go and say this to all of your contemporaries. Keep on hearing, but don't hear. Keep seeing, but don't perceive. Isaiah, your responsibility is to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and or under, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. These people were already culpable. 
It's not that they desire God. They don't desire Him. They're living in darkness. And God gives them over to what they want. Romans chapter 1. He gives them over to sexual immorality. He gives them over to a debased mind. This is where you want to live. You will continue to live there and it will be judgment on you. And this hardness lasts all the way to the days of Jesus. Recall Mark chapter 4. Jesus says to his disciples, I just said this text, to you has been given the secret, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables without interpretation, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is carrying on the mystery, the the mission of Isaiah, a mission of judgment. So explain why in both those passages, I mean, I understand that the people that he's, you know, basically prophesying against are those who do not want to see God. I mean, do not want to turn from their ways, etc., but yet, lest they should turn and be forgiven, that's a hard saying. Why wouldn't it be just in God's heart to, to create that circumstance where, like He did for us, you know? Yes. We were no different. Yes. We turned and we were forgiven. Yes. That, that's such a mystery to me. And, and by the way, if Isaiah's word was for us, but it was for them as well. It's going to condemn them, yes. It's just, it's not going to help them. Yeah. So, John, well, well just wait. Let, let's, I'm just going to ask you a simple question, and then let's just put it onto the map a little bit of, of Bethlehem theology. So, most basic question, why does God... Do what he does. Most simple answer? For his glory. So I would suggest when we encounter tough texts like this, and it's tough, and we don't want to minimize it, when we encounter tough texts, it must have something to do with his glory. That, and, and, and that is the highest, the highest rightness in this world is God's glory. So, it's right to recognize Him, for Him to move for His highest glory because He's God. If God is up there and He begins to work for anything higher than Himself, He will not be God anymore. He has to hold this position due to the nature of His being to work everything for His ultimate exaltation. Because if He exalts anything higher than Him, He won't be God. But, for Him to work for His highest glory is also the highest love that He could do for His followers. Because to see Him for who He is, to know Him for who He is in all of His glory, 
Whatever it takes for Him to magnify that name and to disclose Himself for who He is, it will let us experience the highest level of joy, the highest level of love. For in His presence is full joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If He stopped living for His own glory, it would not be loving. His highest love, the way He can love His followers most, is by letting us encounter Him in all of His fullness. And that includes His wrath. So the most simple text, that, the, the one that is, is clearest, at least in my mind right now, to answer your question would be Romans chapter 9. So why don't we go there? Romans 9, 22. And I could be off a verse reference or two. But I think it's Romans 9.22. Romans 9.22. So what's at stake is why would God actually act in a way, work in a way, where you have centuries of hardness, darkness, blindness due to His judgment? Why would He, why would he ordain it this way? Why would He shut their minds and close their ears and blind their eyes as the text tells us He did? Here it is. Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known? Wrath and power of God bound up in Him for all eternity, yet and related to His holiness, yet could not be manifest, could not be seen, recognized, appreciated, without a world of darkness and sin. If there's not sin to be overcome, we will not be able to celebrate a Savior. If there is not sin that is done against me and against Christ, then we will never get a glimpse of His wrath against sin and His power to overcome such darkness. What if God, desiring to actually display who He was, what if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, and I would say, out of love, let's keep reading, has endured with much patience objects of wrath, And we were one of them. We were once there. But, but why? Why did He change so that we're not there anymore? Earlier in the chapter, He's going to say, verse 11, it's not because you did anything good or bad, but it was in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Verse 16, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Indeed, He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is that it's the same type of a context. Why would you do this? If not to... It has something to do with your glory, for making your glory seen and and your glory savored among the saved. Increasingly. 
So we read, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared to destruction? Now notice the ultimate end. In order that... At the core of God's being is not judgment against the hard-hearted. It is a necessary reality in order that something else might happen. In order that... He endures with much patience objects of wrath, vessels of wrath, in order that, because this in order that could only happen in the wake of the other, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. we deserve and what we deserve yeah What those two comments identify is that the biggest problem in this world is not evil. The biggest problem in this world is good. That at the core, there is a desertableness, a a culpability among all of us. We're identified with Adam in his sin. We deserve death. And the amazing thing is that God does provide a way. He he enters in, and we're going to read about that right now. God, why me? Why me when I was as culpable as all the rest for your judgment? Why do you open my eyes? And it can move us to plead for more mercy because He loves to bestow mercy. good. That's good. To never become haughty. This isn't about me. This is only about Him. Isaiah's contemporaries couldn't read his book. Look at this text. Astonish yourselves. Here we are. Now we're in Isaiah 29. You can let your eyes roam the page. See where it all fits. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. 
because the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of stupor. A spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes, prophets. He's he's covered your heads like a veil is over your eyes. So that you can't see the glory that's all around you. So that you can't hear what I'm proclaiming to you. I'm calling you to love the Lord with all that you are, and it's not resonating with your soul. I'm calling you to stop that secret lusting, but it's not resonating with your soul. Keep looking at what you're doing in secret, but don't see. Keep listening to what you're listening to, but don't hear. Just keep running with your sin, lest you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and turn and be healed. The vision of all that I am declaring to you has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. That's what Isaiah was for his audience. A sealed book. When a man give it to one who can read, saying, take, come on, Read Isaiah. Do you hear what he's saying? They say, I can't read it. It's sealed. Verse 15. Ah, woe, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark. The problem isn't there isn't light. It's that they're blind to see the glory. They love the darkness more than the light because their deeds are evil. But it wouldn't... Well... Paul cites this text. Because the darkness, just like it had lasted to Jesus' day, it kept going into Paul's day. Here's Paul. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Righteousness. Life. They never made it. The old covenant resulted in a ministry of condemnation, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.9. Now when I talk that way, because Paul talks that way, it's not that there wasn't a remnant. By God's grace, there was Moses and Joshua, there was Rahab and Ruth. There were all the prophets that we know of by name. But the nation failed to reach where they were heading. Why? Because they were hardened. It doesn't say they were hard. They were hardened. That's a passive verb. I call it a divine passive. God's the actor. Notice what it says. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That's Paul's audience. It's our audience living in darkness. And yet there is a remnant. A remnant who sees something. And Isaiah anticipated it. So you're in Isaiah 29. Let your eye go down to verse 17. Is it not yet a little while? Isaiah is preaching between 740 and 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Is it not a little while until Lebanon be turned into a fruitful field? This is the language of new creation. Until 
the fruitful field be regarded as a forest. What does it say? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. All of a sudden, Isaiah is going to matter in that future day, but it's a long ways off from Isaiah's day. The meek shall obtain joy. This is about a hedonistic community celebrating the Lord in that future day when they read Isaiah. Because their eyes will see what's in the book. And they will exult in the Holy One of Israel. So Isaiah, next chapter, I tell you, go write in a book. Inscribe it there in order that it might not be for your present day, but for a time to come as a witness. And what will happen then? Your teacher will not hide himself anymore. A teacher is going to show up and you're going to be able to see him for who he is. Because you're going to have eyes to see the teacher. Your eyes shall see him. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, I'm with you. Always. Don't fear. Don't fear the terror of night. The arrow that flies by day. I am with you as your provider. As your protector. Go left. Talk to Him. Send this email. Respond in this way. No, don't don't respond yet. You're not in a healthy place. The teacher will be with you. Guiding you. Isaiah's book was for a future generation that would hear. So we say, when? When would that blindness and deafness leave? And here it tells us it's when the teacher will show up. Well, how does the rest of Isaiah talk about the teacher? Isaiah chapter 2. The question is, when would the eyes see? Well, it's going to happen in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up as the highest among the mountains, and the nations, the peoples, will flow to it. Why? Why? Come! Come! Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He, Yahweh is the teacher? Yes. God is the teacher in these latter days, that He may teach us His ways. Go to the right. Go to the left. I'm with you. That you can walk in His paths. Isaiah 54. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Jerusalem. For you will spread abroad. Jerusalem the city is going to grow. To the right. To the left. Your offspring will possess the nation's When will it happen? Oh, it's a day when the nations are going to be brought into a people of God. Possessed by the people of God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. So when will this happen? When the teacher will show up. It will happen in a day when... The nations are brought into the people of God. The people of God are ever-expanding. And compassion comes from the Lord, who is the Redeemer. 
For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace. Oh, it's going to be a day when a, a covenant of peace will be present between God and his people. Now, is this all the same day that I'm talking about? Oh, yes, it is. Because all your children shall be taught by the Lord in that day. And great shall be the peace of your children. Now, what chapter are we in? Isaiah 54. What happens in Isaiah 53? Suffering servant. We're not there yet, but it's coming. The suffering servant text ends with the joy that was set before him. God was pleased to crush him so that if he would become a guilt offering, he would see his offspring and be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he would die like a lamb on an altar. He would die and then he would see. He'd have to be raised from the dead. And what would he see? His offspring. And it will... And he'll be satisfied. And that's the joy that was set before him that pushed him. And the offspring that are his are mentioned right here. Just a few verses later. When will it happen? It will happen a day when the Redeemer pours out his grace, ultimately, as we read about in Isaiah 53. That's when they will be taught by the Lord. Eyes would see. Ears would hear. Now, We've seen so far this in Isaiah, this day when his book would matter, when people would be taught from the Lord through Isaiah, latter days, by Yahweh, but that's not the only way Isaiah talks. There's this intimate interweaving of Yahweh himself with one who can be called God with us, Emmanuel. This, this royal, kingly servant who bears four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we see, oh yes, Isaiah will matter in a future latter day when God will show up as a Redeemer. Yahweh will move. But how's God going to move? He'll move through His arm. That's what the servant's going to be called. That's what the Messiah is going to be called in Isaiah 53. The arm of Yahweh. Notice, Behold my servant, this, we've already looked at this text, Isaiah 42. One of the servant songs. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. This individual will have the very presence of God working in and through him. He'll not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. So Isaiah 2, the nations will gather to Jerusalem elevated because the law of the Lord will go out. Now the coastlands are waiting for the law of the Lord, but it's focused. The day when Isaiah will matter is when the servant, the royal servant will come up and nations from the farthest parts of the earth will be longing to hear his law. He'll be the teacher. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you, Mr. Servant, by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant. God said it'll come when I make a covenant of peace. He is that covenant of peace. He is the bond that holds humanity and God together. It's in His person. 
He'll be a light opening eyes that are blind. He's the one through whom God will work. And when He opens their eyes, they'll be able to see and read the Bible, read Isaiah in a way not even Isaiah could, let alone most his contemporaries. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me. I think this is the servant talking again. The, the royal servant representing God, whom we know of as Jesus. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Look at how the Gospels use this text, these texts. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, Isaiah 54, 13. And they in that future day will all be taught by the Lord. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if you're among those who have come to Jesus, you're among those who have learned and been taught. It's happening. You have eyes to see that for ages was not able to be seen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the one that Isaiah was pointing to. Isaiah 61. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is identifying Himself with the hopes of Isaiah and saying, you can read it. It's for you that by encouragement from the Scriptures, you might have hope. For all that was written in former days was written for our instruction. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen light. So, My hope today was that you might find your hearts stirred to see light this semester. Recognizing that that's why Isaiah was given. So that you and I might experience light. That we might have ears to hear God's Word guiding us. His presence with us. Go right. Go left. I will not leave you. I know your heart is weary. I know that you are broken, but I'm not going to let you go. Because a bruised reed, I will not break. A faintly burning wick, I will not blow out. Out of your gloom, out of your darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The meek shall obtain joy. Um, as you're reading that, I was thinking of it, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch saying, how can I understand this? And then in the context of Christ, he's able to see and understand and rejoice. Amen. That's it. That's it. Write it in a book because it's for a future. A future. And in that day, the teacher will not hide himself anymore. So I pray that 
this semester and the next that Daroshi would be less and that the teacher would be more and that you'd be able, by His mercy, to hear His Word, to see His glory, that I would merely be an agent in His hand, that I would speak as if speaking the very oracles of the teacher, that I would serve in the strength that the teacher supplies, so that in all things Christ, from whom, through whom, to whom are all things, may be praised. Amen? Come back next week. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.